Hello, and welcome to the UMA Financial Podcast. My name is Chad Kelly, and I'm excited today to talk to Scott Halverson, a local attorney about contract reviews. Hope you enjoy. Hi, Scott. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, yeah, no, today we're going to take a dive into an area that you have some expertise or specialty in, uh, and that is reviewing contracts. These are, these are typical uh, common questions or topics that we get from physicians as they're reevaluating maybe, maybe employment agreements with their current employer or pros- prospective employers or physicians as they're transitioning out of training, taking that first job. We get a lot of questions about contracts. Um, so because you're an expert in this area or much more qualified than us, this is why we're having you on here. So thank you for taking some time. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, um, what brought you to this point in your career? Yeah, thanks for asking. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Again, my name is Scott. Um, I, I did my undergrad studies at BYU in accounting and then went to law school at UCLA. So I've been a lawyer for 15, probably 16 years and really practiced all kinds of law. I've done some employment law, um, participated in litigation and um, then business and contract law as well as, as estate planning. So over the years, I've worked in uh, Las Vegas, Nevada, and then in Mesquite and St. George, as well as here in the Wasatch Front. So um, I feel like I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with these topics. Um, and I feel like I'm a pretty broad-based attorney in, in terms of what I've done and, and what, I, what I do now. So um, I still do a lot of contracts and um, I, I had talked to Chad and uh, we know each other and he'd suggested that uh, this might be a discussion we can have to help benefit some of the UMA clients and others that may be listening to this podcast. So again, I'm glad to be here. Happy to touch base on these subjects and uh, that's kind of who I am. Awesome. Thank you. Well, jumping into the topic before we get too far into the weeds, maybe let's talk a little bit about some of the, the basic structure of a contract. Um, you know, most physicians, as they come out of training, um, it's very common that they work for a large group or they jump in like a private practice. Maybe talk through some of the, the differences in how a contract might look in either, either of those situations. Yeah, that's a great question. So um, I know that a lot of people come into these larger groups now and those larger, group, larger groups have kind of base contracts that are largely um, the same. They start in the same place for everybody and then they can be negotiated. Yeah, I was going to say, there's probably not too much customization. It's, they're largely yeah, similar they're largely for most the physicians. Same. They're largely the same. It would be certainly different if it was a small practice or maybe you're buying a practice in a small town. That would be a different thing entirely, just buying the practice and becoming the owner. But if you're going to work for a practice, either as an employee or an independent contractor, that's really where maybe we can talk about here at the beginning. So an employee would be someone that receives a W-2 at the end of the year. So they work for the company, they work for the practice, they work for the group, and they um, are essentially an employee. An independent contractor is someone that gets a 1099. So they um, are perceived as more independent than an employee. And there are certain IRS distinctions that are required to be deemed an independent contractor. To be an independent contractor, you have to have some true independence. The employer can't tell you how to do your job, uh, even really um, in what way to do your job. They essentially just say, hey, you're a doctor, 
we need you to do this, accomplish it, however you're going to accomplish it. Okay. As an employee, they could say, hey, be here eight to five, you know, do this at certain times in certain ways. You must follow these procedures. So an employee is a much tighter relationship than an independent contractor. Um, but an independent contractor at the same time has more freedom to take more jobs. So there could be, you know, he could work, he or she could work at three or four different um, medical practices or one or two or however they want to do it. Whereas an employee is generally kind of locked in to that practice. Um, an employee also has a benefit from a tax point of view because there is really self-employment tax or the, the Medicare and the social security tax that an employer pays half of. So I think it's 7.6% and then it doubles to be 15.4% um, in that range. So when you're an employee, the company pays half of that. If you're an independent contractor, you pay that yourself. So that's something that can add up if you're evaluating whether you'd want to be an independent contractor or an employee. Yeah, it sounds like there's- Generally things are, are largely the same between those two, except the, in a broad brush, what I just described. Yeah, no, that's good. That that I think that laid some good found uh, foundation or groundwork for, you know, if you're evaluating two options, kind of understanding how the basic structures are going to compare. You know, a lot of times, and I guess it depends a lot of times on the specialty or the desires of the individual. But some physicians, you know, have a desire to work for a big group, and eventually, at some point in their career, break off and be independent. Um, so a lot of people have questions of, you know, if I were to jump on with this group and then leave one day, what sorts of agreements am I agreeing to as far as like competition yeah. or non-competes or non-solicits? Maybe talk a little bit about that, help us understand uh, maybe yeah. what they should be aware of. That's a great point. Um, in, in the state of Utah, I think you should generally look at non-competes as something that probably shouldn't be longer than one year and probably should be pretty limited in geographic scope. Okay. So I think that most doctors probably um, should be hesitant to sign a non-compete. Um, but if they did, it would it should be limited to a year or less and probably to a handful of miles. Obviously, as an employee or a person signing a non-compete, you would want it to be as limited as possible. Meaning and like you can't practice medicine within a certain number of miles. Yes. Maybe, okay. Yes. And, and I think maybe the, the most that you'd want it to be is 50. Let's think about the city of Salt Lake or Davis County or Utah County or Washington County um, or Cache County. You know, how big are these counties and these larger counties where you might think I'm going to go from one practice to another practice. And so you may say, okay, I'd agree to a non-compete for a year or less, and it would be 15 miles or it'd be 30 miles or five miles, whatever. And obviously the employer would want that range to be larger. Yeah. But the court would really look at it and look and see, is there a inhibition on the free, the free market if this happens? So, so these aren't, non-competes aren't really favored in the eyes of the court because it really inhibits a doctor's ability to earn a living and to, to have free economic exchanges. So yeah. there needs to be some tailoring of it. Now, sometimes an employer may say, well, we'll just make it three years and a hundred miles. And if the doctor signs it, then sure, he or she may just 
be afraid to leave or afraid to, um, <laughs> afraid to try and get another job. Yeah. They'll, so, they'll, they know they'll have to relocate their family to another state. Yeah. So I don't think a core, even if it was three years and a hundred miles, I don't think there's, I don't, I don't think that a Utah court would uphold that, but there are sometimes that a doctor would feel, um, compelled whether out of his or her own integrity or at least fear to try and make a move so sometimes there's this power struggle with these if that makes sense but it would be best not to sign one and then if you did sign one it would be best to make it uh, less than a year and for a short geographic region Um, and then non-solicits yeah i think those are a little more um a little more uh, enforceable where you can't take someone's employees so if your favorite um, nurse or your favorite uh, physician's assistant was working for this other practice and you left a uh, non-solicit agreement would say, Hey, I can't go ask that person to come with me. Yeah. Makes that sense. person, that person could say, Hey, can I come with you? And that's not soliciting them. That's just someone making their own decision. But I think it's, it's probably, within the realm of professional etiquette, not to solicit people to come with you. Um, that, that might be different from two doctors sitting down and hatching a plan that they wanna go form their own practice and they're gonna leave and go um, because there's no real solicitation or arm twisting or that kind of thing. But it's really kind of after the fact, looking back over your shoulder and seeing, let's see who can go get from the old place to come over here. Yeah, um, You're not really supposed to do that once you've signed a non-solicit. Um, but that's kind of the basics of that. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. Um, another uh, common question people have going into a contract negotiation is, you know, do I need to put on paper how many hours I'm going to work? Or um, if I have the ability to, to do moonlighting, work on the side, are those common things that you think you can, you can hash out ahead of time or you should put in paper or kind of work out after you sign? Yeah, I think those things should be figured out at, at the at the inception. So there should be uh, an expectation of work hours and work assignments. So, you know, there, there's some people listening to this who may work at a university or may do something that requires some research and some teaching, others that don't, but it would certainly should spell out what percentage of your effort should go to what area of your required tasks. And then also kind of how many hours and, and what the expectation of, you know, if there's additional WRBUs what the compensation is for that once you've hit a certain threshold. I think that kind of stuff should be spelled out. And then also in terms of moonlighting, now there's a distinction. I think if you're a 1099 independent contractor, I don't think there's really any such thing as moonlighting. Moonlighting would be, I have a regular job that I'm a regular employee as everyone in the world thinks of an employee. And then I have a side gig that I do on the side. So I work for this group. And then, you know, on the weekend or nights, I kind of, run over here and I'm an independent contractor at this other hospital or some yeah. other, other group. So that should be spelled out too. You'd hate to get into it realizing you are or aren't making enough money and you want to do some moonlighting. You'd kind of want to get that spelled out. Okay. Well, good. Um, what, one other topic, I guess, while we're at it, people like to, they talk about is some groups may offer to help pay some of their student loan debt down. Yeah. You know, and it could be the case that, uh, the original agreement changed after time, depending on the profitability of the group. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, some people say I'm nervous that maybe they're going to retract their original offer to pay my loan down the road. If profits drop or other circumstances happen, yeah. is that something that should be figured into a contract initially upfront? 
Yeah, I think that should be in there as well. So anything about student loan repayments should be in there up front. Um, anything, anything financial that you expect to occur within the term of the contract should be in there. Oh, so don't, don't let anybody tell you, or my recommendation would be, don't let anybody tell you that, oh, we'll deal with that later. We'll figure that out later. Um, most of the time that doesn't work out really well. Um, and that sometimes leads to termination of these contracts or where you're being asked to leave for cause or not for cause. Um, and, and it can spell out in those agreements, you know, what happened. So if let's say you're accused of some kind of sexual harassment and therefore you're terminated for cause, um, you know, it could say that the loan repayment survives that it should be happen anyway, if you've been there a certain number of years or that there's no, maybe a payback requirement or things along those lines. But in terms of specific termination, if it's going to be a four cause termination, it will spell out, you know, if you do this, this, or this, then we can terminate you for cause. Otherwise it would just be a termination at will. And sometimes with the termination for cause, you lose some of those benefits that could have been in there. So it's definitely something to think about and take a look at. You know, when you have an, an, a job in Utah, it's at will termination. So you can hire or fire someone whenever you want. Okay. But when you have an employment agreement, like we're talking about now, then it spells out additional protections. So you want to feel comfortable that those protections are there and that they dovetail well with the financial um, implications of you continuing or terminating your work there. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, that that's great. Um, you know, typically I think most contracts probably spell out most of these details and make it very clear, but oftentimes we run into people who say, you know, I've worked for this group for a number of years and, uh, we can't see eye to eye on this point. What's the best approach for a physician? Is it to just you know, to, to work one-on-one with their HR group or their, their boss? Um, mm-hmm. Should they loop an attorney in right away? Uh, what are some options that people have, I guess, settling disputes over contracts? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. So uh, if it's a dispute that's going to lead to the termination of your contract, then it is, it is a good idea to work with HR, work with your boss, work with a lawyer. Any of those things would be helpful. Um, as a lawyer, you might expect, I'd say, yeah, call a lawyer, they'll help you. Um, but I know the doctors on this, listen to this podcast are smart people that um, can kind of work through issues as well. So the first thing to do would be work with your boss and kind of work through things and try and, try and arrive at a, a place where everyone can, can agree and move forward. If there comes a time when you've got to leave your employment and you feel like you or they are breaching the contract in, in, in such a way, or this is a, this relationship is really going to end and, and maybe badly. Um, there's several ways that those are handled. One is a contract could require mediation. Mediation is a non-binding um, informal discussion to kind of end a contract or resolve a dispute. Then there's also arbitration. There can be binding and non-binding arbitration. Arbitration is kind of like a mini courtroom, except not quite as formal. There'll be an arbitrator there. Um, He or she will walk through evidence, likely have lawyers and reach a conclusion. A non-binding arbitration can go to a court afterwards. A binding arbitration really should be end right there. Um, Arbitration may not be be as um, awesome as people kind of make it out to be because it doesn't have all the same protections as a court. And so you may not have a chance to appeal and things like that. 
but mediation is very common. So if you have a, an issue, you want to mediate it, you hire a mediator and you kind of work through it. But again, hopefully you can work with HR or discussion between your lawyer and their lawyer or with your boss about just kind of resolving issues. But if they escalate, those are the kind of the end game approaches to how to get out of a contract in part ways. Yeah, certainly. Um, oh, one other thing I wanted to bring up mention, um, oftentimes people will, um, they'll have the question that, you know, say in their, their it, while they're working, uh, they develop a new procedure or new equipment. How would that figure into their contract? How would they protect themselves or typically how is, would new ideas is it theirs? Is it the, the employers? How is that spelled out in the contract? Or is that something once yeah. again, they work yeah. out as they discover these new concepts or ideas? Right? No, as a basic principle, an independent contractors ideas, uh, inventions, new discoveries would generally be theirs. Yeah. And employees would generally be owned by the employer. Yeah, so if you work for, so that's general, the general rule of thumb or general thought process. But in every case, it's probably not a bad idea to put it in there. And the employer will probably spell it out in there saying, hey, if you invent something, it's ours. Um, so if you're an independent contractor, you may want to make clear in your contract, hey, if I invent something, it's mine. So there's no dispute about that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, good. Well, Scott, thank you. This I think this has outlined a good framework for people to, to start from and begin evaluating their contract. Um, any other last advice or thoughts you give to someone who's in the process of looking over a contract or considering a new contract? Yeah, I would think, I think one of the first things that you should do is talk to someone else in the group, maybe a mentor, a friend, a, a colleague that has some sense of how the group handles these terms, payment, hours, what hours you're going to work, what you can expect for your call, what can you expect for additional payment for additional WRVUs. I mean, it'd be, it is the person that knows the most is the person that's there in the group that's willing to kind of share the history of the group or the history of the practice and kind of give you a sense of what you should expect. I think they can add a lot more to your understanding than anyone can from the outside um, because it's just, they know they're familiar with how things have gone before. And then one other thought I had that I didn't mention earlier is in terms of termination, it's probably also a good idea to spell out how much lead time you need to give before you mm, yeah. quit your job. It, in most medical practice is not like a two week notice, like other jobs in other realms. It's, it's probably something that professionally you'd owe more of a lead time notice than that. Yeah. So that's probably something that should be thought through and discussed as well in these contracts. That's great. Well, Scott, I really appreciate your time. You've done a great job. Like I said, laying the foundation for things to consider when reviewing a contract um, appreciate you cut, carving out some time in your busy schedule. Um, anyone who's listening, if, if you have questions um, about contracts or topics like this, feel free to reach out uh, to myself or one of the other advisors here in our office. And we'd be happy to put you in contact with someone like Scott, someone who can a little more specialized in some of these areas and can really um, hold your hand or help you navigate some of these complex topics. So once again, Scott, appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, thank you. Appreciate it. Have a great day. Hey, you too.